Hello! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title, TFT. I'm Krista Wallace. You know, when the world shut down because of COVID-19, uh, my music partner Gord and I kind of thought, that's it. We're not going to play again for a long, long time. This is my partner in my jazz duo called the Itty Bitty Big Band. <laughs> and, and we were pretty much right. Um, we didn't play for a very long time. Then we had an opportunity just last week. It was awesome. We were asked to play for an 80th birthday party. It was held in the backyard. It was a nice and big space, so we could be at one end and the family was at the other. There were only about 14 guests there, and they all sat at individual tables, and they didn't get a caterer, and nobody had to cook. They Each, each family just ordered delivery from whatever establishment they, they wanted, so everybody got the kind of food they wanted, and we set ourselves up uh, at the other end of the yard and... Um, yeah, it worked out really, really well. And we got to play for two hours and they all could sit and chit chat. We were just sort of background music. They could listen if they wanted or or talk. And we weren't so loud that it was impossible for people to visit. And then we had a break and they did cake and happy birthday and a toast and all that stuff. And it was it was super fun. And boy, Gordon and I were really excited to play again, to know that we still know how, and to know that we can do this um, in a socially distant way. You know, we wore masks while we were setting up, and while we were playing, we could take them off without worrying because we were far enough apart and it was outside, and no worries. Matt and I were talking just now about uh, seeing, you know, a video of somebody on YouTube or whatever, where there's some embarrassing story has been told about this person and then they can't just sort of laugh about it and then they have to sort of tell their side of the story and, uh, and, and try not to make themselves look ridiculous. That got me thinking about this one story about me that always gets told at family gatherings. So I'm going to preemptively tell it to you. And this is the story of when I was really little and uh, the school gerbil was home for a visit. I think it might have been Christmas vacation or something like that. So we were looking after the school gerbil. And I had been told that in order to pick up the gerbil, if I want to pick up the gerbil, you can grab it by the tail and pick it up. And then you, you hold it in your hand. Well, a funny thing happened when I picked up the gerbil by its tail. The tail broke off of the gerbil's body. Now... When you're a little kid and something like that happens, it's kind of freaky. I'm going to just tell you, it, it freaked me out. The gerbil's running around the cage and I've got his tail in my hand. Naturally, I'm terrified that I'm going to get in trouble. So I can't remember. Some, somehow the news got out to my parents that, that the gerbil's tail had come off when, of course I did not say well I don't know why I honestly don't know why I didn't just say I picked up the gerbil and his tail came off but I said that the gerbil had gotten caught I said that I hadn't done it and naturally I said that because I was afraid I was going to get in trouble well then I got in trouble for lying about it go figure um the gerbil seemed fine he seemed I, I don't know I honestly I, I didn't do it on purpose dude I promise but that's what kids do. I'm pretty sure I handled that kind of a situation differently with my own kids. I think 
in the moment, I would have said, you're not going to get in trouble if you tell me the truth. And that way they felt reassured and they could just tell me what happened and they didn't feel like they had to lie about a thing, you know, kind of helping set them up for a successful outcome as opposed to looking forward to having something to punish them for. <laughs> they can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how I handled stuff like that, but they might have different memories. Anyway, that's it. There's that story. And then there's the time I stapled my thumbs together. <laughs> you know, when you you open up the stapler and you put the staples in and then it it has to it has to click shut again. Well, I had my thumbs over the part that the staple comes out. <laughs> and, and so then the staple came out, one hole in each thumb. <laughs> you know, nobody was hurt but me, but I didn't want to say what had actually happened because I knew I would look stupid. So anyway, so <laughs> I'm willing to look stupid now. So it's okay. I'm down with that. Um, now back to to what you actually came here for. Um, what chapter is this? 14, I think. Yeah, you know, there are only 18 chapters, so we're getting down to the wire here. So, uh, I hope you stick with me and I'm working, um, I'm working very hard on getting book two ready so I can start podcasting that in the fall as well. Probably take a couple weeks break in between, not, not that there won't be a podcast, but uh, I won't be starting up with book two right away, just FYI. So stick with me. I'm already setting up um, some chats and readings from some other people I like, and uh, I'm sure you'll like them too. Um, right, so here we go. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 14. Nenya. Derry and Janik returned mid-morning the next day, bringing supplies with them. Through her own swollen eyes, she saw Janik struggle with a buckle as he affixed his battle-axe to his saddle. According to a low voice to Derry, the healer had done what she could, but he would likely never see properly out of his left eye, nothing more than shadows. Derry sat next to Kier and called Jeskelin over. "'What can you do to help Kier feel well enough to ride?' Kier wanted to protest, but bit back her pride. It would be days before she would be able to ride without significant pain if she did not accept help. Those days meant precious time to their mission. "'May I see?' Jeskelin gestured to Kier, and she exposed her back to him. He and Derry assessed it together. "'I see swelling and redness, some oozing,' Derry said. "'All normal at this stage. Ordinarily it would take several days for this stage of healing.' Jeskelin nodded. I can speed that up a bit, but I will need some time to recover myself afterward. Of course, Derry said. Better that you take that time now, so that you are fully recuperated by the time we are set to leave. Jeskelin prepared himself, drinking a lot of water and meditating for several minutes, while Kier gingerly lay on her side on her bedroll, head on a ball of clothing, her bare back revealed. Her broken rib was still far too painful to lie on her front. The mage knelt at her side. "'Lie still and try to relax. Let yourself go completely limp. Darian Fennel, 
Please stay at her head and feet, just in case. In case of what? Fennel said, placing himself at her feet. In case she moves suddenly, it's important that she be still. Jeskelin rolled up the sleeves of his robe. Kier closed her eyes and concentrated on being limp and still. Relaxation was hard to achieve, and several times she had to breathe the tension out of her legs and arms. She felt the warmth of Jeskelin's hands, not touching but hovering above her lacerated skin, and her muscles contracted with the fear of his touch. "'Shh,' he whispered reassuringly. She breathed and let go. He murmured words she couldn't understand, and after a moment she felt not pain exactly, but an odd sort of tightening that played on the edge of burning. A low growl escaped her throat, and Derry's hands pressed gently on her upper arm and her head, fennels on her legs. Movement from the mage told her he was not focusing the energy from his hands on one localized spot, but that he was shifting their position. The sensation was very like when, as a child, she had painted herself with mud and it had dried, making the skin feel shrunken. A tugging inside her torso that took her breath away seemed to be consistent with her rib knitting itself. Finally, Jeskelin's body seemed to shake, and Derry's voice said, Enough! and the sensation stopped. The mage flopped to the ground next to her, a constricted scream trying to pierce its way through a closed throat. Derry leapt up, and Kier opened her eyes to see him and Fennel hefting their companion over to his bedroll. Kier realized that whatever Jeskelin had done for her had not resulted in mere exhaustion in himself. A quick analysis of her own condition told her she was not completely healed, but she hadn't expected that. The pain of her wounds had lessened, had changed. It felt shallower somehow. A light pressing on her side revealed a much-improved broken rib. Soon Derry returned, kneeling next to her to observe and offer his impressions. "'The wounds have scabbed over,' he said, "'and the oozing has stopped. I would say he has bought you a few days of subcutaneous healing. I think you will find that you can probably put on a shirt without it rubbing too painfully, and in another day or two you will be able to ride, at least for short stints.' "'Enough to get on our way?' He nodded. I believe so. Kier's gaze slipped over to where the mage was prostrate on his bed. At what cost? Derry sat back on his heels. It's a spell that we choose to use only when absolutely necessary. He has literally taken on a few days of your pain. You could say loss of pain is his gain. With him out of commission for a time, we needed to do this in a place where Fennel and I could easily keep watch. Guilt racked her innards enough to replace the pain she had given away. What about Janik? Derry shook his head. We chose to help you because there is nothing more to be done for him. He can ride where you could not. No spell of Jeskelin's can change what has happened to Janik. For a couple more days they stayed put so both Kier and Jeskelin could recover. Kier showed her gratitude by focusing every iota of energy she had into healing. They had a mission to carry out, and she was acutely aware of holding them up. Derry continued to apply his salve, which kept the surface of her skin from stinging when she put on a shirt. A healing potion would accelerate the process. At last the captain determined that the two invalids were fit for travel, and the mage was quite recovered, so they began to pack up. Kier, her joints and muscles stiff and aching, moved carefully through her preparations— there wasn't much to do. The rain had dissuaded her from leaving items lying around, so her saddlebags were already packed. 
She'd been immobile, so little had been disturbed, her bloodied and torn tunic she'd added to the meagre supply of sticks for the fire. She replaced her stolen boot-knife with the dagger Jaskelin had given her in Paterak. The dwarf tried to shove his rolled-up cloak behind his saddle, missed and dropped it, cursing under his breath. Without thinking, Kier hastened over and, with a hiss of pain from the sudden movement, picked up the bundle even as Janik bent down to grab it. She handed it to him. I'm really sorry. He snatched the garment out of her hand. Yes, as soon as I'm able to wield a weapon again, if ever, I know what I'm going to do with it. With that, he gave her his back. Cheeks aflame, barely seeing, Kier went and, with Fennel's help, hoisted her saddlebags onto Trigg's back. If all went well, they ought to have arrived yesterday, Valraker surmised. He was trying to read, sitting on one of the velvet-upholstered armchairs in Kian's library, but was distracted by so many things on his mind. One of Valraker's teams had arrived from the northwest to report on the success of the task he had set them. There were rumors of bands of orcs sighted just on the northeast corner of Balin, but recent experience had taught the dukes not to trust these reports— Twice now an overeager scout from Balin had reported the sight of an unfamiliar army, and in fact it was one of Kian's own patrols protecting the borders. All the same, every time he heard such a tale it was unnerving. He awaited the return of his other team for a more accurate picture. Valriker also felt some concern for Kian, who was awaiting a message from Barthelen Castle, two duchies away. Kian's wife, Alon Mare, had been prevented from coming to Shale by an illness— Kian was expecting word as to her condition, and had hoped to receive news well before this time. It caused him no trivial amount of vexation. Naturally, Kian's concern for his wife became Val's own. The two Barthelons were the only people Valraker thought of as family. Any true relations were gone. The Dark Elf had thought to come into the library and read to prevent his mind from dwelling on those subjects— He'd pulled an old favourite off the high shelf and blown the dust off it as he sat down, but it was impossible to concentrate. His long legs could not find a comfortable position. Sitting straight was out of the question, and sideways with his legs flung over the side made the arm of the chair dig into his back. The floor was an option, but it was chilly. Maybe it was his choice of material. It just wasn't gripping enough to pull him in and away from his troubles. He closed it and climbed back up the ladder to return it to its place on the shelf. He would try another. He slid Grendish Ferilan out of its slot on the high shelf and inhaled to blow the dust off the book. He stopped mid-breath. Something was odd. Grendish Ferilan was dust-free. The book he'd tried first was from the same shelf, and it had been topped by a snowy layer. These ancient volumes had sat in this library for countless years. He had read Grendish Ferilan before, but that was long before his exile from Eckert, before Derry was even part of the castle guard. He examined it carefully, comparing it to all the other leather-bound works, noting the way the dust clung to the organic material on their spines as well as the tops. How strange! He was the only one in the duchy who would be interested in this book, let alone able to read it. One other fleeting thought occurred to him. What are the chances? But he did not have time to dwell on it, because Acadia appeared in the doorway and said— "'Val, Piper asked me to summon Kian. "'I'm taking the liberty of assuming you will wish to be with Kian "'when he receives the message.' "'Val interpreted this last as Acadia also believing, "'in the astute fashion that made her an invaluable steward, "'that just as he would wish to be with Kian, "'Kian would wish him to be there. 
Involving Piper, the castle mage, meant it was probably more than just a message. It was more likely the healer herself wishing to speak directly to Kian. The energy and organization necessary to complete such a spell was no small feat. Whatever the message was, it was critically important. Valraker thanked her from his rung and replaced the book. The dark elf noiselessly entered the tiny room at the top of the tower where Piper stood still as a statue, hands raised before her like she was pushing the wall away. Her eyes were closed and her stocky form was awash in light from a hundred vanilla and cinnamon scented candles randomly placed around the walls, the counter, the floor. Before her was a panel of dark glass, flanked by windows on either side that looked out eastward over the expanse of Shay's patchwork field and forest. The light of the mid-morning sun frontlit the mage's concentrated features and highlighted the grey veins in her brown hair. Val found himself a spot to stand in the space, mindful of the candles, and waited. A moment later a servant arrived with a tray laden with sticky buns, flaky pastries, a dish of honey, a covered plate that smelled suspiciously of grilled venison, a pot of tea, and an earthenware wine jug. She skirted expertly around the candles and set the tray down on the one counter space clearly reserved for it. With a nod to Valraker, she exited just as silently as she had performed her task. Not long after, Kian rushed in with Acadia close on his heels. The high elf looked about to burst with questions, but checked himself, illustrating the wisdom he had learned in all his years as duke by respecting the power the mage was mustering for a difficult spell. Valraker admired his friend's patience and self-control. Acadia sat on the stool in one angle of the hexagonal room, ready to deal with any aftermath. She poured herself some wine. Valraker also helped himself to a cup of wine, pouring one for his friend as well, though he refused it. He took a sip just as a quiet sigh startled them all amid the soundlessness. Ready. The mage relaxed her obelisk stance. It will be time very soon. She rolled her shoulders and shook out her hands. You will want to stand here, my lord. Kian stood where she had been, while Piper stepped aside and placed herself in front of the window to the left of the dark glass wall. Valraker moved forward so he could see well. It's time. She placed her hand on the top corner of the glass, and a soft glow emanated from the previously opaque surface. It brightened, and a form began to take shape, eventually coming into focus as shoulders and a dark head. Roman, Kian said. The woman in the glass bowed. Thank you to Piper here and Quiven there for making this possible. For their sakes we won't waste words. My lord Kian, the prime healer at Barthelen Castle said, and Valraker as well, she added with a bow to the dark elf. The news I have for you is both happy and sad, and I do not know, now that I stand before you, which I ought to first make known to you. Begin with the former, and I shall endeavour to stay my reaction until I have heard both. I shall hope that the joy of the first may be the stronger and hearten me for the second. Let it be so, my lord. My lady Alon Mare, as you know, was ill when you departed Barthelen Castle. Shortly thereafter it was determined that she is with child, my lord. Kian's light-coloured face took on a glow that Valraker recognised as joy and delight. But his friend did as promised and did not alter his mood. Indeed, there was a furrow in his brow as he braced himself for the second part of the message. It came directly. The other, my lord, is this. Her illness took a different turn these five weeks ago. 
Valraker watched Kean's complexion cloud with an ashen pallor as the prime continued in the compassionate yet matter-of-fact tone of her profession. "'We have waited rather than inform you at once because we wanted to have something to tell you. At first we did not know what to make of it. My lady did not suffer from the normal sickness that accompanies her condition, but was unusually fatigued yet unable to sleep.' She became delirious, and spoke wildly of rampant infestations of rats and locusts, then of coming tempests and enemy attacks. The woman had obviously witnessed this herself, for she spoke with an ever-deepening crease in her forehead. The pitch of her voice rose. She eats but cries out in pain, and instead of gaining weight she is losing it. We simply— Her voice caught. Do not know what it is. "'only that this illness is quite separate from the pregnancy, "'and we fear that serious harm will be done to the child "'if my lady is not cured soon.' "'A sigh escaped her throat. "'But we do not know how to cure her.' "'She fought back a strangled sound "'and looked at Kean in anguish. "'She cries out for you, my lord. "'So plaintive, I cannot erase it from my memory. "'I wish I had more I could tell you.' "'Kean needed no hand to steady him.' He bore the news with the stoicism for which he had always been admired. To any outsider he may have appeared unmoved and uncaring. He finally took a drink of the wine Valraker had set near him, and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Thank you, Roman, for bringing this to me with such forthrightness. By the goddess I hardly know what to do. Val said, You must go to her, of course. Kian nodded. You're right. Of course. "'Roman, I will be there as soon as I can.' The prime bowed her head in thanks and stepped away. Piper tapped the glass again to break the spell. Then, with a gasp, she crossed the room and fell on the food. Acadia rose and placed the stool, guiding the mage's body onto it, even as she crammed sticky bun ravenously into her mouth. Acadia kindly spread honey onto a pastry, and Piper nodded her thanks as she replenished her depleted energy. "'You must go immediately,' Val said. Kian gulped his wine. Yes, of course, but you... Will you wait here for your company? Yes, and I will be of whatever assistance I can to Linden in your absence. Kian sighed, running a hand through his steel-gray hair and resting it on his forehead. There can't be a cure if the disease is not known, he said darkly. Valraker put a hand on his friend's shoulder. I can't lose her, the high elf said in a whisper. She is everything to me. I know. A child! I never dared to hope! But now... Kean could not finish the thought aloud. Then Piper's voice interrupted with a word as soft as a breath. Kami! Val put a hand on her back. What did you say? Piper turned around. You must ask Kami. He will know. Valraker's throat tightened with dread. But he knew Piper was right. Their only hope was Kami, the most powerful wizard in all of Rydris. That first day of travel was difficult for Kier. She dismounted frequently to walk off stiffness, and it surprised her that the healing potion accelerated the mending at the site of her wounds, but didn't actually make her feel much better. After travelling only a few hours, she was done in, and Derry called a halt. She slid down Trigg's sleek body, inhaling the smell of him and taking strength from it. She didn't let go, but leaned against his shoulder, possessed by an all-consuming weariness. 
She hated holding them up, but knew that Nenya was not going anywhere. Better to rest now and at least be of some use when they got there. Each day her condition improved. Having a mission to focus on was the best medicine. Ronav and Khan appeared less and less in her dreams, and the camaraderie among most of her friends allowed her to force the horrifying memories into rapid retreat. By the fourth day she was able to ride all day, still fatigued by the time they made camp, but her aches had eased and her dizziness subsided. She was even able to go through her slow-motion sword-work routine. Though twinges of pain stopped her short once in a while, it felt good, energizing, as the blood pumped and awakened those muscles. When she caught Janik watching her, she was glad he couldn't see the flush that rushed up her neck. Would he think she was flaunting her recovery? Fennel led them through the narrow western tip of Deerwood Forest. The air was still, and only a few jays and starlings played and tormented one another in the budding branches of the birch trees. A ground squirrel darted across Kier's path, a badger disdainfully ambled aside, and a woodchuck fled as they approached. The hooves plodded on the spongy ground. They broke out of the forest in the early afternoon, where the sun god Dima spent just as much time hiding as he did showing his fiery face. Only a few hours ahead was the enemy-occupied Eckert. They would have to proceed with caution from here, alert for border patrols. The village of Nenya was perhaps another two days beyond the border. They crossed the imaginary line into enemy territory as the shadows neared their longest, with not a patrol in sight. Kier braced herself for a sudden sense of foreboding, the feeling that they were being watched, or a confrontation by a band of orcs. Instead, the lowering sun stretched its sweeping arm across land that quite astonished Kier. Buttercups, bluebells, and purple cowslips brought the meadow to vivid life with color. She had unconsciously feared that nothing would grow in land that was occupied by Dregor. Fields of tall foxtail and brome grasses brushed against their legs, the spikelets were nearly up to Jeskelin's armpits, and he had to use his staff to wave it aside and open a path for himself. As the sun dipped, they descended a hill into a dusk-dimmed valley and were confronted with stands of cattails and bulrushes. Jeskelin cried out in surprise as he and the horses suddenly found themselves ankle-deep in water. A startled flock of herons rose into the air in a deafening beating of wings, and the horses reared up in alarm. The mage narrowly missed being knocked into the marshy water by Janek's horse as he regained control. I want to thank our tracker for seeing the water before it reached my nether regions, Jeskelin said dryly. I'm sorry, Fennel cried. It came out of nowhere. Janik added, Too bad our tracker's skills did not do us the service of noticing the water before we walked into it. Derry sighed. Just get us out of here, Fennel. Kier cast Fennel what she hoped was an encouraging glance, but his eye-roll clearly said, I've messed up again, as he turned them away from the marsh. At midday, two days later, the village of Nenya lay below them like a ghost town. Through the thin fog, the only movement Kier could see was a stream running eastward, cradling the village like a caring arm. It appeared to need as much care as it could get. Even from the hill they could tell by the weathered grey buildings that neglect had taken its toll. "'Not much to look at,' said Janik, as though their journey were a waste of effort. His vision in his good eye had improved enough to make out details, particularly in bright light. "'It troubles me that it has come to such a state as this,' Jeskelin said. Kier shared his dismay. "'Where are the people?' "'We will have to go in and find that out.' 
Derry crouched down and indicated that the others should join him, and to that end we must still proceed with caution. A contingent of five warriors was liable to arouse suspicion. It would be better to send in a couple of scouts disguised as common travellers. Juskelin was an easy first choice, as he could relay a message back to the others telepathically. Derry, in his armour, could draw too much attention. Kier might have been the logical second choice, if not for the bruises still on her face. "'Why not Fennel?' Kier said. "'His hair and hood will hide his ears.' Janet grunted. "'The Tenderfoot has a lot to say for someone who's done nothing since she joined this group but make trouble for the rest of us.' Her sword was pointing at Janet so fast he fell on his backside. "'Don't expect me to cut you when he's slack just because you're a cripple.' "'Easy!' Terry's voice sliced through the tension. "'Easy!' There was alarm in Janet's eyes. She lowered her sword and shifted her gaze to the eastern horizon. "'Let me just point out,' Derry said, "'that we are in enemy territory.' One of the horses stamped the soft ground. "'Fennel is not a bad choice, indeed,' said Jeskelin. Derry was not convinced. He glanced at the elf. "'My concern is your concentration and discretion.' Kier flung out her arm. "'I suppose in all your years as Valraker's captain you've never made a single mistake?' Fennel stifled a gasp. Derry stared at her, his blue eyes stormy. A squirrel shuffled on a tree branch. Jeskelin said, "'Perhaps we—' "'All right, then.' The captain's eyes didn't leave Kier's. "'Fennel will go in with Jeskelin, but his loyalties will be given away if anyone finds out he's an elf, so he had better not let them. Understood?' Kier tried to hold his gaze, but weakened and turned away. "'Yes, sir,' Fennel said. Fennel's feet slipped on dew as he and Jeskelin descended the hill through the afternoon haze. Fennel felt edgy and restless, his head never still as he glanced around, looking for whatever it was they were looking for. His keen eyes were suspicious and watchful as they darted around underneath his hood. Upon entering the village, though, his nerves settled and sank into something more resembling sorrow at what his eyes beheld. Dilapidated houses were little more than broken-down boards and logs. Weeds grew in window-boxes, and dandelions were the only wildflowers bold enough to show any color. The whole village blended with the cloudy skies that enveloped it. "'People actually live here?' Fennel whispered to Jeskelin. "'No,' the mage responded gravely. "'They exist.' For there was evidence of people living there, though they had yet to lay eyes on a person— Smoke trailed upward out of a crumbling chimney. The watery smell of someone's midday meal wafted around them. A shop sign creaked on its hook, and there were footprints in the dust on the porch. Both elf and mage jumped at the sound of a voice. Oh, sighed a woman in a dreary wool dress that looked much like a sack. You're late for the event, too. She spoke slowly as though exhausted. I had to find my other shoe, you see. She gestured lazily to her mismatched pair of worn boots. Her gaze turned along the dirt road and her feet began to follow it. She hadn't noticed they were strangers. The two friends exchanged a look of curiosity. Event? They went after her. They reached the square where what looked to be the entire population of the village had gathered around a raised platform built of stone and timber. The woman melted into the crowd. The companions needn't have worried about drawing attention to themselves. No one paid them any heed whatsoever. Fennel had the feeling that Derry could have ridden his warhorse directly up onto the platform and no one would have batted an eye. 
Jeskelin motioned for Fennel to follow him, and they moved back toward an unkempt house, careful to avoid the piles of cow dung and a broken milking stool. Fennel climbed agilely into a leafless cherry tree by the house to get a better view. Fennel noticed at the far end of the square, behind the platform, a clumsily erected scaffold, at the top of which hung a large bell with a rope dangling from it. He pointed it out to Jeskelin. "'Suppose that's to remind them when to eat?' he said, only half-joking. He drummed his fingers on the tree limb, waiting along with the villagers for whatever it was they were expecting. He saw movement across the square. Two tall, thin men escorted a girl through the crowd. A path opened before them as the people politely allowed her to pass. They hoisted the girl up onto the platform. She could not have been more than fifteen, and, judging by the size of her belly, was within days of giving birth. One of the tall men stood next to her. He raised his hand for silence, which was not difficult to achieve. There was little noise before. "'This girl is not coupled!' he cried in a clear voice. "'She must be punished!' The crowd erupted in a sudden furor that nearly knocked Fennel out of the tree. Waving fists and shouting, yelling, shrieking words of sheer hatred when seconds ago they were like statues in a museum. "'Horror! Witch! Scum!' were a few of the words that reached Fennel's horrified ears. The crowd had switched from noiseless apathy to an instant frenzy. Then it stopped as abruptly as it had begun. The man had raised his hand again. "'Jeskelin, what are we going to do?' Fennel whispered frantically. The mage looked up at the elf, perplexed. "'These are Valraker's people!' The man on the platform had walked to the edge. Fennel pulled off his hood as he reached for the bow on his back. "'She must be punished!' the man shouted again. "'Magistrate, the first move is your right!' He jumped down off the platform, leaving the girl standing there trembling, alone and bewildered. She did not say a word, as a salt-and-pepper-haired man in the front row raised his hand, which gripped a fist-sized jagged stone. He pulled his arm back and aimed his throw. But before it thrust forward to release the missile, the magistrate cried out and dropped to the dirt, an arrow jutting out of his shoulder. The crowd was shocked. No one looked around for the source of the arrow. They just stared at each other dumbly. Then mayhem broke out. People panicked and ran in all directions, screaming wildly. Stones that had been intended for the girl were now thrown at each other. Pieces of furniture were pulled out from under cloaks and used as weapons in a sudden brawl that put the lowest-class tavern to shame. Fennel didn't have time to congratulate himself on the accuracy of his shot. He slithered out of the tree and fought his way through the throng of madness, shielding his head with his arm and dodging blows. Weapons flailed, making occasional contact, drawing blood in a few instances. He ducked out of the trajectory of a flying soup ladle. He hadn't intended to start a riot, but at least they weren't throwing stones at the girl. "'Go home!' he hollered at people as he pushed his way through. Some listened and began to move away, while others looked to the voice for a new target. Their reflexes were slow, though, and he was already past. A woman was dashed to the mud by a carpet-beater to her back, and two men fell over her, leaving three of them in danger of being trampled. A red-faced teenage boy wrestled with the rope another man was tightening around his neck. Fennel snatched the chair-leg out of the boy's clutch, cracked it against the man's hand to loosen his hold, and ripped the rope away from him. Just before Fennel reached the platform where the poor girl stood, shaking and forgotten, he heard the bell. Its low, sonorous tone resonated through the square and had a most marvelous effect on the chaos. 
Fennel looked about in amazement as every man, woman, and child who had been screaming and brandishing a weapon stopped. Arms lowered, and they began to move peacefully out of the square. Gathering his senses, Fennel scrambled up onto the platform. He ignored the girl and raced across to the other side. The bell rope still swung back and forth. The bell swayed, but whoever had rung it was gone. And that's it for Chapter 14. Next week, some really creepy shit's about to go down, so I hope you'll join me. I need to give a shout out here as well to Brian Rathbone. I did an audiobook for him. Um, the book is called Ascension by Morgan Rich and Brian Rathbone. I guess it's essentially Morgan is writing in Brian's world. So Brian writes the World of God's Land series, which uh, I encourage you to check out. Um, but it was through that process of doing that audiobook for them that I got all the technology and learned all the, the the tricks and the editing process and all of that. So I literally would not be doing this podcast if it weren't for Brian Rathbone. So thank you to him. And every week I thank my family and that's because they have done nothing but support me and everything I'm trying to do with my writing and my music and everything else um, since since day one. So so when I thank them, it's not just words. It, it, it really is a case of I could not do any of this without you guys. So thank you to Matt. Thank you to David and Heather and to Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon for the same reason. Thank you to the original six. And thank you to you. Check out the Facebook page. Check out the Itty Bitty Big Band Facebook page if you're of a mind. Uh, drop me an email to totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com if you want to get the newsletter. Now go be fantastic. <laughs>